This is the Kingdom Movement Podcast, a place where we will explore through conversation how discipleship, theology, and community really can transform our world. Hey guys, this is uh, Jake and Paulo back with the Kingdom Movement podcast, and we're super excited. Today our topic is the prophets, the biblical prophets, and the living in exile of the Jews and their return to Jerusalem. Um, but, but before we dive into all that, we're actually going to do a quick summary, kind of the story thus far. Um, we've covered a lot of ground, and we figured it'd be good to just do a little bit of review so I'm going to hand over to Paulo in a second. But if you have noticed that our audio quality is a little bit nicer, you can hear us. You don't have to crank up your volume. We invested in two mics, so we're excited about that. So I figured I'd address that elephant in the room if you're like, wow, they sound a lot better now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, hey, guys. Uh, so yeah, well, I think the last episodes we had a lot of information in. We have a, we had a lot of things, and so maybe we need to kind of try to start organizing them so we can jump into this big uh, part of the Bible. So yeah, uh, we started discussing f- just from the beginning, and we started with the idea of uh, the community of love, and we started just explaining why why God created the earth and everything, and, and the idea of partnership and idea of human being becoming partners with God, uh, in taking care of the earth. But then we found out like human beings they they decide not to trust God, and then they they eat from the fruit. At least hearing the uh, what the snake says, and then they eat from the fruit. And from there we have this question like, what is God gonna do to restore the humanity to that? partnership uh to the to the plan that he wanted for humanity so that's the the that that's the thing that starts following from there what god starts to do to restore to restore humanity back to the first goal first object uh yeah first goal of why of the earth and he and why he made he made humanity so then we have the big story which is the story of um uh, we had the story of the flood, uh, the flood, which is God uh, renewing everything. But then, oops, but then uh, humanity they end up not uh, not changing. And then we have the story of um, the Tower of Babel. And then after that, we have the big, I think, the main, the big main uh, story, which is the story of Abraham. And God calling him to leave his family, and he made this promise to him uh, that through his seed he would he would uh, bring the restoration and bring the humanity back to what they were supposed to do. So that theme from 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 Abraham, that's when you start seeing all these stories that come, all these families that come with all all of them with the same theme. So then we go, we start following the story of uh, of all his family. Yeah, of Jacob, um, all the way down to the people um, who are the descendants of Jacob who come out of Egypt. There's that great Exodus act. This mm-hmm. is the act that God is basically marking these people out as his own um, and then giving them the promised land or giving them the promise of the promised land, the Ten Commandments, the law, the tabernacle, the place where God's going to dwell mm-hmm. with his people, 
like he did in the garden. Um, and this ends up leading uh, Joshua, after Moses passes away, the kind of where we were at in the last story, to conquer the promised land. Um, the judges rise up because Israel's unfaithful already to the covenant. And then we get the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, um, David and his whole line and the line of Israel and ended basically the story last time with the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming and basically wiping both kingdoms out, sending them into exile and kind of leaving this promised family, this family that was meant to deliver God's purpose, God's goodness into the world in a really, really bad state. Yeah. And, and one, I feel like one very important thing that we have to to focus is about the promised land because I just feel like the idea of the exile and it comes from that. So God promised them this specific place, this place that they would be calling home, uh, that he would, yeah, he promised that it, it flows honey and all this, all these good things about that specific place. So they would call that a home, you know, and they go there and they conquer the, 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 the place with God's help and everything. But then uh, what happened is they're, they're home. They're supposed to feel home. But then what happened is you we get into the story uh, where we ended last season where they are conquered and then they take out of their home. So I, th- I feel like that's a very important theme uh, that connects to this, this next part. And I think that theme of exile cannot be overstated within Israel's understanding of itself the narrative moving forward, exile becomes this kind of haunting overtone to the entire rest of the story, even up into Jesus's day. Um, And we'll get into that, obviously, in the future. Um, But I think as we were kind of trying to organize this episode, and we understand that we've run pretty long in the last few ones, so I was trying to structure, and we were working together, how do we structure this well? Because I don't know if any of you who are listening have ever tried to open the book of the prophets, but at least for me, especially when I was a pretty new believer and not until recently, the prophets were kind of an intimidating, weird, like I didn't really know how to read them or they were super kind of negative overtones. And I just was like, I didn't really know how I felt about them. Right. Every time I read them, I almost walked away feeling depressed, kind of like what is going on? You know, all they ever do is really criticize Israel. But once you understand kind of the situation of what's happening, I really feel like the prof, the prophets and the prophetic word that was meant for Israel of its day really can speak to us in our own day of maybe a lot of the thing you know, we're really not that different from the, the Israel that the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels were addressing. But um, maybe before we dive directly into the, the books, I just want to give a quick background for those of you who might not be super familiar. So the the book of the prophets is divided among um, basically quote unquote major and minor prophets. There are prophets also outside of the book of prophets in the Bible, but the main or minor distinction really has to do with length, nothing to do with like importance or these guys were more special than the other. Um, and so the majors are Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then there's twelve minor. But there's kind of in scholarly world, the division between different prophetic eras. So like Moses would have been considered a prophet, but a prophet meant to lead God's people uh, and through prophetic rule, being kind of the the spokesperson uh, for God to people. 
And then there's people like Elijah, Elisha, Nathan, Micaiah, and they gave like military advice, you know, rebuked or made pronouncements or blessings to like rulers. So in the book of Kings, we didn't really talk about Elijah and Elisha much, even though they were major, major players yeah. uh, in that time. Uh, they were also in a prophetic role. But then what they would consider like later on prophets. So this is the Isaiah's, the Jeremiah's, the Daniel's. They were more about giving rebuke to certain like social climates or warning against exile and destruction, calls to justice and repentance, and even like casting a vision of the future of a future restoration. So they have these distinctions between the prophets um, and the prophetic roles at different times, which I think is important in the sense of when we think about prophets, God uses these men and women as voices for what he wants to address in that moment. So it's not always the same thing. But there's also specific themes um, in the book of the prophetic literature. And this is God's judgment, God's instruction. A big word that comes up a lot is day of the Lord. Yep. Um, and this has in the moment themes. So meaning like day of the Lord can be a small quote unquote day of the Lord, meaning a vindication of God or a uh, judgment of God mm -hmm. in a specific moment, but it also has future implications. Yeah. And then there's where we really begin to get this idea of a messianic prophecy. So the idea of a Messiah King, a, a person of the line of David, who's going to come and restore Israel. Mm -hmm. So this really gets developed within the prophetic literature. Um, so maybe we can just briefly touch on each of those themes and kind of just go over it. So the first one that I have at least written down, and I think you have the notes too, is God's judgment. So maybe, Paul, I'll hand it over to you and you can talk a little bit about what does that mean within the prophetic literature, right? Because we hear that word and maybe we even cringe a little bit like, oh, judgment. So what, what did that exactly mean when God was making a judgment within the prophetic literature? Okay, so... Uh, as you're saying, like, there is this theme of, as we were saying, like, the last episodes, uh, the, the main core idea of the Bible is God chose this group of people to become this example for not only for their own, their own family, but for the whole community around them. So they should, they have this group of role they got in the Mount Sinai and group of, which are called the commandments. It's 10, we say we, we normally know 10, but we have more other commandments. So those commandments, they were placed in them so that they can follow them and they become this example. And through them, the whole earth would reach the, the, the restoration. Yeah. But then what happened is uh, those people start not following all those things. So God has to deal with those, the, all those, those, all the evil, all the bad things that the people of God have been doing, but also in general how, how the whole world has been dealing, has been doing all this evil. So the the theme uh, or the theme of judgment comes into that in God coming and judging the evil that exists on earth. So that it can get rid of it, so that we can go back to being the people of the image we have in Genesis yeah. one. So judgment is God dealing with the evil uh, that exists on earth within the people of God, which is the Israelites, but also in general on earth. I think we'll discuss that yeah. more in the uh, in the books. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's this idea, especially within the prophetic literature, of like condemning idolatry evil and oppression mm -hmm. of the poor of the vulnerable of the foreigner and basically this idea that israel has not kept their end of the covenant so 
when we think of covenant, you really have to think of this idea that they made a pledge to God that they were going to be his people, yeah. right? And they really didn't hold up their end of the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, we'll talk about it, especially in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah really, really focuses on the the breaking of this covenant yes. and the current climate of um, Israel and Judah and just how far they've kind of spiraled mm-hmm. downward. So yeah, we'll get more into it maybe when we talk about Jeremiah. So the second is instruction in aftermath. So this is basically like the words given after judgment is passed. So I think of the example I've written down here is Jeremiah 29, 11, which is like one of the most quoted scriptures mm-hmm. from the prophetic. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a good future. And we kind of just take this and we pluck it and we say, okay, yeah. I'm going to throw it. But really the original in- intent of that verse was the Israelites are in exile. It seems like all the promises of God, where are they? Is God going to fight for us still? Are we still the people of God? You have to understand this is an identity crisis. Who are we if we're not Yahweh's people? Because mm-hmm. this is who we've been for you know close to a thousand years. Um, but the reality is that God is telling these people, yes, you're in exile. Yes, um, Jerusalem's destroyed. Yes, you no longer have a, the promised land. But I haven't forsaken you. Mm-hmm. I haven't yeah. abandoned you. It's not like you're stuck in Babylon forever. I do have a plan moving forward. Yeah. Um, but you need to trust where you're at right now that I will accomplish that, right? And he even goes on to say in the book of Jeremiah, like, plant gardens, build your families, make a home in Babylon because you're going to be there for a while, right? Yeah. But don't think that I've abandoned you. Yeah, and I think... I think that's one of the biggest theme also of the book of Daniel, you know, it's just like these people have to, you know, they're, they're not in their house. And I was just even thinking about it today. I don't think now we have an idea of that, you know, because now when you see wars, when you see conquering, you know, it's not like someone coming and taking everybody, you know, from their country and then bringing them to their own country. That That's not how things happen. You know, they go there, they destroy the place. Sometimes they establish their own government there you know but back in this time those people who just came and then kind of destroyed everything and then they just took people with them you know so imagine that someone comes and then take over your house and just takes you with 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 them and say now you have to live here you know and then you start having that question like what is where is home you know where is my own house you know like what can i call home you know because you can't go back to your home because it it First, it got destroyed. Second, probably someone else living there and everything, you know. So then you are there, you're stuck in this place, and then you have to start calling this place home. And I just feel like also the book of Daniel shows a little bit more of that. Yeah, I think the probably closest to modern equivalents I can think of, if it helps us like emotionally capture what exile probably feels like, felt like, um, was the slave trade of the early 1980s, mm, yes. um, where people from Africa, from Asia, from uh, the Middle East are getting shipped off to a completely foreign land. They don't know the language. They don't know the culture. You know, the mortality rates and the treatment of these people are just horrendous, right? And you just land in some place, and all of a sudden, um, this is supposed to be your new home. But it's not home. This isn't where you grew up. No one cares about you here. And in fact, they they even mistreat you in that place. They see you as less than. And so we have to imagine this is what exile feels like. It's not like they're just moving to a nice foreign location where the capital is. No, they are um, slaves in this mm-hmm. place. They are not, you know, they're second class citizens. The, 
the other example it's not quite apples to apples but it's um even like with the syrian refugees during that whole crisis that mm -hmm. fled into europe syrians didn't want to be in europe they wanted to be in their home right but their home wasn't a place that they could stay anymore um, but they a lot of times they get blamed they're the scapegoats for anything that goes bad in that country uh, you know they're mistreated they're viewed as less than they don't know the culture they don't know the language so they create their own kind of clusters in those lands so this is kind of what we have to visualize when we think of exile so the next theme that we have is day of the lord so this became basically a phrase used for god setting things right from their current broken state so there's basically this idea of there's many days of the lord that could happen while still anticipating the future day of the lord where all would come under god's sovereign rule and reign so um maybe if you have any thoughts on that or comments you can give it otherwise i can keep going but um so yeah i think the, the theme of the day of the Lord is where kind of the hope starts. It's where kind of start seeing the light at the end, you know. So imagine yourself, you're in this place, your house got destroyed and everything. You have no no hope, you know. And then you hear all these prophets kind of judging and saying all these bad things that happen will happen to you. And then it starts happening, you know. And then you start asking yourself, when is this going to happen? When is this going to end and everything, you know. So I just feel like kind of the day of the Lord comes has this kind of hope that looks in the future like it's not over it's not mm -hmm. this is not your final place you know i will come and i will bring you back home and everything so i saw so the day of the lord is kind of like plays that role and you you'll find that in all books i think yeah all yeah. books kind of have not the day of the lord but kind of have that yeah. where the, the hope starts and the day of the lord also becomes this idea of judgment so when god says the day of the lord's about to fall on jerusalem it's this idea that God is not going to put up with mm -hmm. the broken yes. state of things. And so, you know, whether it's Jerusalem, he even says, you know, in Habakkuk, which we'll get into this a little bit, Habakkuk's wondering, why in the world is this happening to your people? He really, Habakkuk's an interesting book because it, he's asking the question of God. Yeah. You're using these awful people to do something awful to us. Yeah, we understand we're not following you well, but how can you use these kind of people? They're not any better than mm -hmm. us. And God basically tells him, I'm going to judge them too. Yeah. Babylon's not getting away with this either. So you need to trust that I know what I'm doing, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah and, and I really like that book because uh, when I was just reading the book and just seeing the the main idea of Habakkuk, also a little bit of Jonah. Of course, Jonah, he was just this coward and everything. <laughs> I'm sorry for the word. I hope it doesn't hurt people <laughs> using those words. But it was kind of like that. Um, but also he had to, he has this question, one of his biggest questions, like, why is God, you know, reaching these people, you mm. know, why is God going, going and sending me to, to those people, you know, who are not people of God in anything, you know, and Jeremiah and Habakkuk asked those questions, like, why are, like, and, uh, yeah, all those questions, like, why God, why there's all these bad things happening and everything. Yeah, and so I think the prophetic literature doesn't shy away from no. those things. And the day of the Lord becomes, especially in Jesus's day, this idea that God is going to implement his rule. He's going to make everything right. And we'll get into what that means when we get to that portion, what Jesus, how Jesus takes that idea and kind of flips it on its head for his own day. But it's the, it becomes basically this coined phrase for when God is going to act in a mighty way to make things right. And ultimately, he will do that for the whole world. Yeah, and I think... For that, we have to understand that we're talking about these people who have seen what 
what it really means to have God ruling, you know, mm-hmm. what it really means when you lead, you're being led by God, how you, it's not when we read, when we were talking the, like, the previous podcast, like about all the stories, you know, when most of the, most of the wars they had to fight, you know, it's not like they were, they didn't do that much work. God is the one who was doing most of the work, you know, God was providing food, food for them in my, uh, in, in the wilderness and all those things, you know. So they kind of have this idea of what it means when God is ruling, when God is the one who's ruling. So when they hear day of the Lord, they know what that means. They know that this is something good that is coming. When mm-hmm. God comes and he's the one who's ruling, that means that the, his people and the world, you know, will, will enjoy, will, will really be happy. Yeah, which leads us into kind of the last two, the, the first of those being the messianic prophecies. Mm-hmm. So this is where kind of this idea of a messianic or Davidic ruler is going to come and implement God's divine rule over creation. So all the nations are going to come under his rule. And so some Jews took this as being like after being conquered after empire after empire, whether it was the Babylonians then the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans um, in Jesus's day, they begin to believe, OK, one day God's going to make us the top dog. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, and others like Amos, who was a prophet, warned that Israel and Judah could fall under the same exact judgment as those nations if they weren't willing to honor God. It wasn't an automatic. Yep. You guys get to be the next conquerors. And so there's all these ideas of who this messianic ruler is going to be, what's he going to look like. But the main themes is he's going to be a figure like David. Mm-hmm. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule over the nations. Um, and, it, and, you know, Jesus, it isn't automatically assumed that the suffering servant of Isaiah and the son of man in Daniel are going to be the same person. Yes. That's not an assumption that's automatically made. We kind of make it because Jesus has tied all these figures in together. But in Jesus's line of thinking, all of these are messianic um, ruler attributes, right? The son of man, the suffering servant, the uh, Davidic king, all of these get put into this one figure. But it basically comes down to in the prophetic literature, this ruler, future ruler that's going to come and be in charge of God's people and in charge of the whole world. So the last is apocalyptic. I think this probably is the one that um, gets people the most, I don't know, oogled out about future and weird. So the primary apocalyptic writers in the uh, prophetic literature are Daniel and Zechariah. So basically it's this idea of future trouble and or deliverance heavy symbolism is often a part yeah. of apocalyptic lit- literature and then heavy on numbers and like organizing history into a certain pattern or yes. look so i don't know if you have any thoughts you want to share about apocalyptic literature uh not that much i just feel like apocalyptic you find this these two group of people when it comes to ap- apocalyptic literature those people who really liked to go then and they kind of you kind of see like these are kind of weird people. It's hard, <laughs> it's hard to talk to them, you know, because they're always, you know, in this expectation, you know, that uh, yeah, something is gonna happen. Did it happen and everything, you know? And then you just find people who, who, who doesn't want to hear about it, you know. It's like I don't want. I'm gonna read the Bible. I'm gonna believe in God and everything, but I don't wanna hear about apocalypse because they are so hurt mm. but everything and because it's just very confusing thing yeah so we have us at the very end our last episode will be on revelation we figured it was important to make that its own episode so we'll definitely go into way more details about it but i think it's really important with apocalyptic literature to understand that these symbols 
and numbers and these visions mm -hmm. made sense within their original context. And they were a way for the prophets to say things about a certain situation or about a future situation that if they were to just say them flat out, we're gonna get them in some really hot water, right? You can't just go around and say that Caesar isn't the king of the world and Jesus is um, in a Roman sense, right? Uh, and not get into some trouble. So they were a way to paint pictures about rulers, about certain climates, about what God was going to do in a way that took discernment to understand them, but what made sense. I think a great example would be that Jesus directly quotes it in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Actually, I actually think it's Jeremiah. I'm not sure if it's in Isaiah, but it's this idea of the, the moon turns to blood red and the, the sun is blotted out and the stars disappear. And it's in the book of Revelation. Jesus quotes it um, when he's giving his great discourse about the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what it is. It's this cosmic event that the cosmos is and the, the heavens are tied with what is happening on the earthly reality. So when Jerusalem falls, when the temple is destroyed, in our minds we're like, yeah, okay, that's sad. Another city's destroyed. A, building, a building's gone. But to the Jews, this was the heaven and earth place. I, I, I cannot stress that enough. We don't really feel it inside of us. But imagine this was the place where you met with Yahweh, right? There was no other place to go. It was the temple. This is where God's presence dwelt. And that place is destroyed. It's taken away from you. That is a cosmic, seismic event that completely transforms yes. your reality. And so the descriptive picture language that the prophet, the prophets give matches the emotions in how they see what is really going on. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus uses that language, when he's talking about the temple, he's pulling from that example from the prophets, what this means in history and time. It doesn't literally mean that when you look up the sky, the moon's going to be turning into blood and the stars are going to disappear and the sun. No, that, and I think a lot of times we've read it that way. I remember growing up hearing, oh, this is what's going to happen in the future. And we take it as God's just going to wipe out the cosmos. But in reality, it's picture language speaking of a of an extreme reality and we use that type of stuff all the time right we use pictures to describe a reality it doesn't mean that those pictures are what's literally happening so i think that's really important when we read apocalyptic literature not to get so bent on like oh when are the scorpion tails with human heads gonna show up you know what i mean like no we need to do a little bit of digging what does that symbolism mean uh when the prophets were saying it and how does that meaning fit into our own day yeah and uh, one thing I've, I've learned when I was still learning about journalism in Mozambique, uh, just the protests, uh, pro uh, protest journalism in general, when it came to, to, to the, um, when the Portuguese were still there, is the journalist had to find a way to escape censorship, you know, mm -hmm. because the Portuguese are the ones who brought all the printers, all the paper and everything. So everything you wanted to publish, you had to find a way to escape that censorship. And the best way to do that was to use uh, uh, journalism style, you know, a writing style 
that would confuse the white people. The white people, they wouldn't know the Portuguese. They wouldn't know what 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 they meant. But then everybody else who would read it. They would understand what they, what they really meant. So they use, for example, charcoal to represent black people, you know, and everything. So they would write this poetic uh, journalism to just kind of transmit the message to everybody else, just telling them, hey, we are pro we're still protesting, we're still fighting, we haven't given up in, in fighting for our freedom. So I just feel like kind of it's this image you will also find in the in this uh, apocalyptic uh, literature. And also one other thing is that it all ends on earth, you know, it all ends God, you know, it all ends with God coming back to earth and coming back to temple. That's how Ezekiel ends the book, it ends and everything, you know. So it's not like it, this place gets destroyed. Most of the books that have apocalyptic vision, you know, it ends here. So it's not, it ends like, oh, there's no earth and there's nothing else. So we're all only having it's left, you know, but it all ends with God ruling here yeah. on earth with humanity. Yeah. And well, definitely, you know, as we approach the New Testament, dive into, yeah, what is Jesus actually saying when he's picking in the early New Testament writers? But I think for the sake of our time, let's maybe dive into kind of we're just going to briefly touch the main major prophets and then we'll give a brief summary of the quote unquote minor prophets. But the first book and we're going to do them in chronological order of like when these guys existed. I think that's another thing about the Book of Prophets that really confused me. It was like, when did these guys, like, when did this line up with the biblical story? Normally when we read a book, it's like page one mm -hmm. to the last page is all in chronological yes. order. But the Bible is not organized that way. So Isaiah is the first one we're going to start with. He is kind of the first in line of these major prophets. So he's around 740, 700 B.C., um, that doesn't necessarily matter as much. What matters is he is before and then during the exile of Israel. So remember, Israel and Judah um, are two distinct nations at this time. So Israel was exiled first by the Assyrians and then Judah later by the Babylonians. So he's alive during the Israel exile. So he's actually around before Judah's even uh, a thought of exile. So Basically, he's an advisor to the king, Ahaz, at the time of Israel. And he basically tells Ahaz, hey, you need to trust in the Lord. Um, but Ahaz didn't. And he said, if you do trust in the Lord, he's going to deliver you. But Ahaz trusts more in himself and what other people are saying. So they follow the Assyrians. But what's cool about the, this story is Hezekiah, which is kind of normally seen as a king who did follow Yahweh, um, of Judah. He does trust in the Lord and he's actually rescued from the Assyrians. And so the, the book of Isaiah and that whole scenario shows like who was in the right, the person that trusted in Yahweh, not his weapons, right? So Isaiah also gives us many of the prophetic visions that would form the messianic king. So Isaiah is probably the number one book yes. where we get these kind of messianic slash suffering servant passages. And again, I want to reiterate like, those two weren't necessarily put together in the Jews' mind. Some people did, some people didn't. So this is like Isaiah 9, which is a child who will reign, right? A child who's born of a virgin. Isaiah 11, peace and stability under a Davidic heir. And then I, the great sweep of messianic and suffering soul, servant kind of promises is Isaiah 42 through 53. That's really um, kind of where the big chunk of this messianic reign and kingdom of God is going to come. But I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on Isaiah? Uh, no, you can, can keep going. Okay. Um, 
and I think really I didn't do it at the beginning of the episode because uh, normally we have been doing that, but I, I'll read it now. I think it's really important just to start. This is probably a passage many, many people have heard if they're familiar with church, but this gives us a good summary of what exactly these messianic promises look like. So this is Isaiah 53. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's just 12 verses, but it says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and did not, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid, him on, the, laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He's led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He's put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he, for he will bear the sins of all. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he has exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So, I mean, when we read this, it feels like this is a direct description of what Jesus accomplished, right? And this is more than 700 years before Jesus ever steps onto the scene, right? So you get these vivid pictures, almost like looking into a fog, right? And you can kind of see a little bit of what's ahead, but really the the broader picture of what God is doing is is still concealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think it's it's so cool when you read the prophetic books, like you get these glimpses, right, of who Jesus is and the role that he saw himself in. Um, and so Isaiah really gives us a lot of that. So the yes. next one, um, unless you have any thoughts. Um, I think you tied most of the things that, that covers the book of, uh, of Isaiah. Cool. So the next one is Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is typically seen as being around 627 to 575 BC. Again, when we talk BC, the lower the numbers, it's actually closer to our age. So we just have to remember that. Um, and he is just before the exile of Judah. So Israel's now been exiled. They're gone. The, tri- the lost tribes of Israel are not to be found or restored again. So it's just Judah. Um, and so Jeremiah's role basically is to call Judah back to faithfulness. So kind of in preparation, I've been listening to Jeremiah. And it's just sad. Um, honestly, you see the heart of God who is constantly saying to his people, I loved you, I brought you into this land, I did all these things for you, and yet you do things even the pagans won't do. He, I love it. There's a, a specific verse that he literally says, what other nation 
abandons their gods for other gods. You know, the, if you think about it, the Assyrians have their gods, the Babylonians do, the Greeks do, the Egyptians have their gods. They don't go and be like, oh, let's take the Assyrian gods. But he's like, you guys can't even be faithful to me. You chase after other gods. You, don't, you can't even be faithful to your own god. He says to Jeremiah, like, go into Jerusalem and find one righteous person and I'll spare that city. And he can't. And so the kind of Jeremiah is becomes known as this weeping prophet like he's just heartbroken because he sees the destruction he's literally going to that he stands in front of the temple and calls people to recognize what they're doing but they just won't have it right and there's this line where he talks about like uh, God says to his people, you come to me and you give me offerings and you tell me God you're so good to us you delivered us but you don't, you just tell me that and then you go and you just do the same things over and over again. You don't even in the next heartbeat think about me. You just go and chase that. So he says, you know what? There's an army coming from the north and how about you go to these gods to protect you? Because clearly you don't think I can do it, basically. Um, and yeah, it's just Jeremiah becomes this sorrowful book of what it means to really do what is wrong and lose sight of who God is and what he means to us, right? And what he desires for us. Um, but yeah, do you have any thoughts on the book of Jeremiah? Oh, no. Keep going. You're doing okay. Great okay. <laughs> um, the, there was one other passage in there that uh, I'm trying to recall that was just just so sad, but it, it, it basically becomes Jeremiah um, kind of reluctantly steps into this role, right? He tells God, I'm just young. Who am I to say this to my people? And God says, do not fear them, right? He says, I'm with you. He even says to Jeremiah, if you back down, if you don't say what I want you to say, then it's actually going to go really bad for you. But I'm going to protect you. Because people didn't want to hear what Jeremiah had to say, right? Um, it even says that people stopped at their ears and like, man, these prophets, they're just so annoying. Can't they see like things are going all right? We we have the temple is a big thing that people would say, God's temple's here. Nothing's going to happen to us. And Jeremiah reminds them, no, God's temple is not what protects you. It's the God of that temple, right? Um, and it's just a, the book of Jeremiah is just a great reminder that it is not about saying we're the people of God or having the symbols of God around us, but we really actually have to be the people of God, right? We have to care about justice. Uh, the big issue that God had was that people were corrupt. They were, you know, putting on makeup and dressing themselves in fine clothes while the poor went hungry. They had a, which we'll get into this, but the word hell, the Greek word hell is actually from Hinnom, Ben Hinnom, which was a valley, um, I believe on the southeast side of Jerusalem. And so what would happen is there's a God named Molech that the Israelites in, or the Judeans began to worship and they would literally sacrifice their children in this valley. And so in the book of Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter five or six, God says, and you do these detestable things in this valley. He said, God says, this thought has never even crossed my mind to ask you to do something like this for me. So why are you doing it? Why are you sacrificing your children? And he basically goes on to say, you have set, you have filled this valley with your children and I'm about to fill it with your bodies because and it's going to become a burning rubbish heap that your entire city is going to fill because of what you've done and so Jesus when he picks up on the his warning of judgment is picking up on the same idea that if you continue down the road that you're going down mm -hmm. 
your entire city, your entire civilization is going to become like this rubbish heap where the fire doesn't go out, right? Because in that day, they didn't have sanitary services. You just had to burn your garbage. And yeah. so the fire was constantly burning there. Um, so anyways, yeah, I, very briefly, we won't go into a ton of it, but the book of Lamentations is also believed to be written uh, maybe by... Maybe one thing oh, about yeah. the book of Jeremiah yeah, is... laid down. Yeah, kind of kind of the hope side of it, because I yes. just feel like you can kind of read the book and just see everything that's going on and all this imagery and just God saying through Jeremiah that Babylon is the one who's going to come and just like destroy you. Wreck you, you know? Yes, will <laughs> just destroy you, you know, and everything. Uh, but also in the book of Jeremiah, I think from Jeremiah... 30 to 33 that's when we have this idea of just god uh taking you know placing the 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 ten commandments the rule you know the book of the laws you know in people's heart through this uh, messianic uh person you know mm -hmm. so instead of just having these 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 books i think jesus also mentioned something like that yeah you know in like so the book so he talks about they will come this person from the line of Moses, you know, from the line of David, who is, will be the person who's going to uh, take, you know, place that, that they, they, they rule, you know, in people's heart. And those people are the ones who are going to follow it because they have it in their heart. It's not just this uh, book or this piece of stones that they have to read. They can have, go back to them. So I think that's one of the biggest hope in, in, in the book of Jeremiah. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because definitely chapters 30, through 33 are basically this idea of those who survive this the remnant right this idea of a remnant is really important as well in the exile period that god will restore them that they will find joy again that they will see that god's everlasting love has not left them but god cannot be um tolerant of wickedness you know what i mean and yeah. that's really where the judgment of god comes in judgment in the sense of making things right you know none of us would say that if evil was left unchallenged or unjudged yes. that we would live in a better world and so god has to deal with evil in order for the the project to move forward let's say mm -hmm. so jeremiah does give that hope i'm glad you said that yeah. and like we mentioned 29 11 um, that's in the book of jeremiah in this promise that god has so i believe you were going to take over the next book so jeremiah ends in 575 bc and in the middle of that is the book of Ezekiel. Yes. So maybe just to give the the um, background of Ezekiel and then you can kind of explain what the book of Ezekiel is about. So Ezekiel himself is already living in exile. So this is actually before Jerusalem is destroyed because you have to think when the Babylonians came, they didn't just go to Jerusalem. They went to surrounding areas as well, right? And so those people are already exiled. Um, but Jerusalem's about to be destroyed and Ezekiel's already in exile. So he's warning Jerusalem in the temple about what's about to happen to them. Um, but that's kind of the context of where he's at. He's sending this warning back home, basically. Um, but I'll hand over maybe the rest of the book. Yes, uh, and I think, thank you for that context, because I think that's very important when you start reading the book, because you start reading, you'll see this image, you know, this chariot coming and flying. So Ezekiel, normally back on that time, uh, people would be uh, would become prophets, you know, when they get to their thirtieth, thirteenth, 
uh, year when they're like, 30 years old. And Ezekiel was that was, was in that age, you know. So it's kind of like waiting what's going to happen to me. I'm not home. So no one, it's my birthday and no one will come and make me profit and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. So he sees this vision, you know, of just the chariot coming towards him, you know. And then the big question is like, what is the chariot doing in exile, you know, because mm-hmm. it's supposed to be back there in, 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 in Jerusalem. So that's where the answer comes, you know, Jerusalem, uh, um, the temple, you know, it's just became this place where just people starting to live uh, other gods, people are just starting to place other gods in there, you know, people just starting to worship those other gods and everything. So God is like, nope, I don't feel welcome here yeah. anymore. So he just leaves and then he goes to, to exile. And to revert back to Jeremiah real quick, in my reading of Jeremiah, when Jesus calls, you have turned this place into a den of thieves or a den of robbers or a den of brigands. That is exact language from Jeremiah about the temple. So Jeremiah gives that same condemnation about the temple. So yeah, anyways. Yeah, so one thing I really like about this book is the fact that who makes uh, Ezekiel the prophet, you know, Mm. who would kind of give him this title, you know. It's straight directly God, you know, comes and visits him, you know, and then he just just kind of make him the prophet. And then he gives him this really hard role to kind of send a message back home, you know, just like, hey, you guys are doing this, and then you guys have just placed all these gods in the middle of the temple, and God is is leaving the temple, and he's not coming back there. And then he start performing. He start uh, the way he brings that message of judgment uh, to to uh, to to the people of Israel is through these acts. You know, he start performing. He cuts his hair. You know, and then just to show that uh, this is what will gonna happen to you. No one said it, the prophets weren't weird. <laughs> he is the weirdest one. It is like is way. If you read this book, you'll start seeing what's going on, you know. And then he even cooks food with poops, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know he cooks. Does he food. eat it? Yes. He eats oh God. It. You know he cooks. He cooks food with poop, and then just to show them, like this is what is gonna happen to yeah. you guys. You know, you will have to eat this crappy food. And he even ties himself. You know, like yeah. this is what is gonna happen. You guys will be tired and everything. And what happens is just people don't even understand what he's saying, which is the sad part of mm. this book. You know, it's just like this person who's trying and doing all these things and even god tells him you will go and you'll become crazy man you'll do all these crazy mm. things but no one will listen to you you know so it ends so it just ends with all these bad things uh, coming and all these bad things that are happening and then it ends with just the chariot god leaving and then the leaving the temple and meeting him there but then you start having this image uh, uh i think one of the big most influential image that is in there just like these people have become are so bad that they are kind of compare with these dry bones you know israel is so away from god it just they just turned away from god so much that they are kind of compared with these really dry bone dead and yeah. dry bones and they need someone to come and preach uh, life to them so they can become alive and, and when, i believe ezekiel even has a line where he says who can bring life to these dry yes, bones yes right? exactly and i think i like this passage because it's very it's it it looks a lot like um what 
what happened in the story of creation, you know, because you just see this place, the story of creation say the earth was like void and there has no structure and all these things, you know, and it was kind of this dead place that had no purpose and everything. And it's the same thing with dry bones. They have no purpose. They're just dead, dead and dry. And they come the voice of God that preached that, that says things and, and those things happen. And it's the same thing with the, it's the same idea that comes to this story of, of, uh, of the dry bones. Like someone needs to preach, you know, to become this God, uh, this representative of God who comes and preach life into something. So it's kind of this story of recreation of God's people. And then he start preaching and then you have, you have the restoration, you know, the body and everything. Uh, so they become this new creature, you know. And I think one of one other stories, like he promised that God would change their heart, their heart of stone. He would, they would come someone, Messianic King, who would change their heart of stone and then he would change it with the new heart, the heart of flesh mm. that comes and connects to the story of the, of the dry bones. I don't know if you have something to say uh, in that. Yeah, I think the, the other big theme, so the Valley of Dry Bones, that like God is going to make a new people, right, out of what seeming, seemingly is a valley of death. Yes. <clears throat> and then the other kind of big, big narrative, and I think this really is important as we get into the, the Jesus story and his idea of temple, is that God's presence has left the temple. Like you said, the chariot comes. He's abandoned this temple. It's no longer the place where God is choosing to dwell because it has been defiled by his people. It's been destroyed. God is saying, I've never been contained to this thing, but I will not even put my name next to this anymore. So Ezekiel has a vision of God's presence leaving that temple. Mm -hmm. But then at the book, at the end of the book of Ezekiel, there's this vision of a new temple. Yes. And um, so God tells him to kind of describe all the measurements and all this thing that God is going to come and make a new temple. And this is really becomes a big part of that theme of hope, right? So we have a new and restored people from the, the valley of dry bones or dead bones. We have a new temple. We have a messianic figure. We have a return from exile. All these themes are coming from a place of just really utter darkness, but mm -hmm. it's a sense of hope. And there's this really interesting verse as I was looking while you were, you were speaking. It says, the river of healing. So this flows out oh, of the yes. temple, right? Mm -hmm. It says, in my vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar. The man brought me outside. And basically, he goes on to describe this river flows all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is undrinkable, right? Like, I've been there. You literally float because of all the minerals in it. And it's going to purify the Dead Sea, a sea that could not be revived, right? Again, the it's an image of this valley of dry bones, right? Yeah. Um, but what is so fascinating is when Jesus stands up and he says, all you who are, who are thirsty, come to me, right? And I will give you living waters. He says this in the temple. And so Jesus is calling out that he is the stream of living water that is going to fill the land, right? To go down into the sea of death, the Dead Sea, and to produce life in that place. And so, again, Jesus, it's really important to understand the prophets because Jesus is constantly drawing from these images in the prophets and basically wrapping himself in those yeah. things. Yeah. And one big thing about this uh, is, so there is kind of the day of the Lord in this book, which is you have this big image that it was really confusing for me back on time without understanding because I couldn't understand. But maybe I, I just feel like it's a very good thing to kind of bring it up so people can understand when they go and read. Is this image of Gog, 
uh, of Gog mm. and his city is called Magog and everything, you know. And this image of this really big evil guy and everything and all these big uh, bad people. So this story comes to show God judging the evil on earth. So God, Gog, he is the representation of the big evil, you know, this big, the, the evil all the way on earth because he just comes and he joins all these bad empires around him and then he becomes, he makes this really great uh, nation and then he, this nation starts to want to attack the God's people and then God comes and judge them with this uh, uh, earthquake and everything, the earth consumes them. So it's like the, the earth consuming the evil and after that, that's when we have the story of the new creation. We have the story of that you were you were mentioning, and then one one image is remember at the beginning the 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 chariot was leaving the the temple because the temple was becoming this bad uh, place that God is not welcome. And then the, in this image, the it ends with the chariot coming back mm -hmm. and dwelling in the temple, and that's when you have that river. And one thing that I really liked is with this book also is just like the idea of of this whole last image. It really connected to it's really connected to the idea of Garden of Eden, you know. Because if you read the the Gen, the story of Genesis, they portray the Garden of Eden as this big mountain, you know. And then in this big mountain, there is this river that flows, you know, down mm -hmm. to mountain, and then it's, it splits into three and everything, you know. And it's the represent it's kind of the representation of that. So it's like God coming and redoing everything hmm. back to that first idea of heaven, of earth. Nice. Yeah, so after the book of Ezekiel, um, we have the prophet Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel is a little bit different because there's kind of a narrative story in the middle of prophetic vision. Mm -hmm. So Daniel is basically time 605 to 535 BC. So he's kind of the, the last in the timeline that we get. So he is under the rule, um, I believe, when the Persians have now taken over the empire. So maybe, don't quote me on that, but, well, he's a part of Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar and his, the Babylonians are taken over by the Persians. So I believe he's in there in the midst of all that. But anyways, so he's there before and during the exile of Judah. So basically the idea of the book of Daniel, at least the first half, the narrative half, mm -hmm. with, you know, if you've ever heard Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, that's in the book of Daniel, the fiery furnace, the not bowing down to the statue, Daniel and the lion's den, all these are like kind of classic uh, nursery school, Sunday school stories. Um, but the whole point is basically that God is sovereign and faithful, even in the midst of exile, to those who trust him, right? Uh, while everyone else bows down, Daniel and his friends say, no, like we're going to be faithful to God, even if it costs us. Mm -hmm. um, and God proves that he is with them, right? That nothing can hurt them. Um, and so the second half then becomes this prophetic vision that Daniel gets, right? Yes. And, uh, and it basically shows that God is sovereign over the nations and empires. He's not surprised by what's happened. You know, I'm sure a lot of people, they were surprised. Did God, is God really in control if all this could happen? You know what I mean? Um, but basically... Uh, God is revealing to Daniel, yes, and there's going to be more empires that rise, there's going to be more um, catastrophe that hits the earth, but I am in control, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And those who trust in me are safe. Um, also tells of the expected return and future kingdom, but it's going to be longer in coming than, than expected, yes. right? Um, because there's kind of this promise thrown around of in 70 years they will be able to return back home. That promise is given in Jeremiah. Um and what's interesting in the book of Daniel, it gets extended 
which is interesting because in seven, around 70 years later, the people do get to return home. We'll talk about that in a second. But what's interesting is this idea of exile ending, even in Jesus's day, kind of becomes a haunting overtone. Like we return to the land, we're back in the promised land in some way, shape or form, but the pagans still rule us. We've never had our independence and violence and turmoil and even the temple itself is diminished. So are we really returned from exile, right? And so the book of Daniel kind of touches on that to say, you know, the restoration is longer in coming than what you think. It's not just these 70 years when you get to go back home, but there's something greater that needs to happen. Yeah. So later on, I think the biggest maybe long-term vision, especially when it relates to Jesus, is this vision of the Son of Man. So Son of Man is a term that Jesus uses more than anything else, more than Messiah, more than Son of God, more than anything else. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And when he does that, he is relating himself to this picture in Daniel 7. So basically the vision is, it says, one like the Son of Man will come on the clouds and ascend to the Father. And then the Father is going to put him at his right hand and he's going to rule over the nations, right? And Essentially, we'll talk about this when we get into the Gospels a bit more, but this is this vision of what Jesus has for himself, right? Uh, and so it's really important. I would encourage you guys to read it for yourself. We're not going to go into the super long passage, but this this figure, the Son of Man figure, is meant to be vindicated. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, the remaining people of God, basically Daniel leaves us with this. The remaining people of God should live out their faith in an unbelieving world, trusting for God's deliverance and protection. Basically, kind of what jeremiah ends with it's this idea of like you know you guys are living out the consequence of exile because of what you've done but now that you there's a sign of repentance now that there's a recognition that this is a failing on our part you just need to trust that god is going to move on your behalf you don't need to try and fight you don't need to try and rebel trust that i am going to deliver and protect you so the book of Daniel kind of leaves with this expectation that this what this is what the people of God are meant to do. Um, do you have any other thoughts on Daniel? Uh, no, thank you. Cool. Um, so lastly, oh, just I'm sorry. Yeah, the way I said no, <laughs> I said no. Thank you. As if you were giving me something that I don't want. <laughs> That's not the point. That's not what I wanted to do, guys. <laughs> so just to very briefly summarize the other 12 books of minor prophets because we don't have time to get in all that they're basically no less valuable mm-hmm. um it's again to reiterate just about their length not their content and again they focus on relationship of israel and judah with yahweh unfaithfulness injustice etc all those themes are in there that's why they're prophetic literature they follow the same stuff the two exceptions and we kind of talked about them are jonah and habakkuk I won't even try and attempt it again. But in I think Portuguese is easy. Yeah. yeah. What is it in Portuguese? Habakkuk. Okay. Habakkuk? Yes. Have a cookie? Yes, have a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like cookies, but we can have one. <laughs> so Jonah, as I was kind of brushing up on all this, what's really interesting about Jonah is obvious, so God tells him to go preach to the to Nineveh, which was the Assyrian capital, and tell them that if they're willing to turn from their ways, God is going to spare them. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to do it right because he hates the Ninevites. They're the ones that destroyed Samaria, put all these people in exile. He doesn't want them to repent. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even want to give them the opportunity. And when he eventually, there's the whale. Jonah tries to run away. The whale swallows him, spits him out. He goes to Nineveh. 
um, and he preaches this message of repentance. Seven words message. Yeah, <laughs> and the people repent. They yes. put on sackcloth. They say, you know what? Um, yeah, we recognize our wrong. And Jonah's mad about it because yeah. he knew this is what was going to happen. He's like, God, I knew this. And God makes this plant come, and it puts a shade over Jonah because it's a hot day, and then it withers, and Jonah starts complaining about it. And basically, God's uh, voice to Jonah, or his, his example to Jonah is this, like, did you deserve that plant? Did you make that plant? No, I brought it to you, and now that it's gone, you're angry about it. But my grace is available to anyone that will receive it, right? Whether it's the Ninevites or the Syrians, whoever it is, I choose to give my grace. And if they receive it, then I will move on their behalf, right? It, it, it's not about being a special people. Mm-hmm. The Israelites are not the only people that God wants to see redeemed. But Jonah doesn't want to hear it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's part of that love your enemy ethic of Jesus. It kind of shows that this is still that same God. Jesus mm-hmm. and the Father of the Old Testament are not two totally different kinds of people. This is who God is, right? Um, that he desires to show mercy to his enemies, uh, if only they're willing to turn and recognize it. Um, and then Habakkuk really mm-hmm. becomes this idea of struggling to face the consequences, trusting God um, in the midst of a lot of questions. When in reality, we can't see the big picture. Yeah. What do we do? Are we willing to trust God? Um, and so this this idea of wrestling with those questions is a little yeah. bit different. Maybe, but it, do you have any other thoughts? No, it's just something funny about Jonah's like, he preaches, he, uh, he preaches these seven words, sermon, and everything. You know, he makes it as short as possible and everything. And what happened, even cows <laughs> repent. <you know? laughs> like, he's not, in, he, he doesn't want to do this yeah. and everything. You know, he hate the people just, but God to humble him, you know. Even cows start repenting, like, what? How does a cow repent? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> oh, man, it's just like. Yeah. The book is funny. It, it has a lot of um, how can I sarcasm in mm. the book, you know, dealing with good genres. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I feel like that books also connect to one of the one of the book. I think it's Hosea. Yeah, like in the, the that story of just they having this, you know, this guy who was married to this woman, and then the woman has these kids. You know, uh, the story doesn't say, but it kind of assumes like the woman go cheats on him, and then come back with these other kids and then the man has to just take care and love these kids you know and kind of grief brings that idea of like you guys you guys don't deserve all these mm. things you know you guys have been cheating and all these things but i'm here to take care of yeah people. yeah no hosea is a powerful story of the unfaithfulness of israel yeah. and the faithful love of god um and i think yeah your cow story actually makes me think of something that i wanted to say a while ago um as I was preparing for this podcast. But um, God says, like, in the book of Jeremiah, that he's going to wipe out everything. Your cities are going to be empty. There's not even going to be birds or livestock. And sometimes, you know, for the PETA people out there, PETA being the animal lovers, um, they might be like, well, what a cow do or whatever. But I find that as I was reflecting on that, it made me realize that when human beings, their wickedness gets so great that it actually begins to affect the animal and the natural landscape to the point that even those things can become corrupt. unclean or yes. corrupt. And I guess the I, I'm going to pick on my own country a little bit. And it's kind of funny because this has become a, a <laughs> conflict in Botswana about the bulls, right, that yeah. have been imported. But when the way that I wanted to frame it was when a country becomes so greedy, 
when it becomes so about the dollar bill that it doesn't care like what it's putting in its food, right? Like our, our food companies do not care if they're like literally poisoning us, you know what I'm saying? And when we do that, even the livestock, even our animals can become tainted, right? From our own sin, sin being the product of our greed, um, that it touches everything, right? It's not just about stealing from people or abusing people to get more money, but we can literally um, wreck our world when we allow sin to run rampant, right? And in order for to get a clean slate, God has to start over, right, in that sense. And so it, it was just an interesting thought about, like, in my own sin, it isn't just contained to me. It always bleeds out into other areas, right, um, and can affect things that uh, even animals, you know, yeah. which is kind of a crazy thought. Um, but, yeah, so that's kind of the very brief summary of the prophets the book of the prophets and i think to end this episode we wanted to touch a little bit about the exile and then getting us out of the exile and this is this episode we're going to end basically the old testament narrative in that sense we kind of have skipped over a few minor books um i don't we haven't talked about esther or any of that stuff that all fits within this chronological story um but basically, where the narrative, so if we're following the, the chronological story timeline, um, it's exile and then the return. And that's where the Old Testament basically leaves off. So um, basically, exile in Babylon, again, we talked Ezekiel and Daniel are the prophets of this time. There's a remnant that remains. They live on the outskirts of Babylon. They're promised after 70 years they can return to Jerusalem. And this is actually fulfilled um, when the Persians... There's a lot of empire names thrown in here. So there's the Assyrians who were beat by the Babylonians, who were beat by the Medes slash Persians. And so Cyrus, um, not Donald Trump, Cyrus. Sorry, that's a... That's a Cyrus. I'll tell you that joke in a second. Um, so Cyrus... T- <laughs> now you're looking at me like, I just want to know what the... You're saying. <laughs> so Cyrus, basically, Persian foreign policy was very lenient they were basically like this wasn't just for the jews this is for almost everybody that had been exiled because there was a lot more people than just the jewish people that were exiled they gave clemency they said you can go back to your land as long as you pay us money pay us tribute call us your overlords you can basically do whatever you want they didn't rule with an iron fist kind of like the babylonians and the assyrians so they let the jews go home um and i'll now defer back to so basically during the um the elections in Trump's presidency, a lot of Christians were saying he was the Cyrus. So he wasn't a Christian, but he was the the king that was going to help the Christians. So they're like, <laughs> so I just had to make a joke from any American, the one American listener that's listening to this. So anyway, <laughs> so anyways, after that, the Jews basically returned home. Uh, Zerubbabel, let's try and say that ten times fast. What's that in Portuguese? Do you know? Zerubbabel. 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 And maybe it's just Zerubbabel. That's how I have it spelled. Whatever. Yeah, Zerubbabel. In okay. Yeah. In Portuguese, Zerubbabel. Oh. Zerubbabel. Okay. So, anyways, that guy, the Z man, he leads fifty thousand people back to their homeland, and they're also given funds to rebuild the temple. But like during this time, um, there's like resistance from the neighbors, and they kind of go to the Persians, like little bratty kids, and they're like yo, the Israelites are trying to build this temple. They're going to use it to rebel against you. And so there's this back and forth. And uh, I believe it's Ezra. Is it Nehemiah or Ezra? 
one of them, he's ascribed to the Persian king or the cupbearer, okay. the wine, wine cupbearer, and he convinces him to go back and help him administrate. So basically, the temple gets rebuilt, uh, and this arose during like Hag- Haggai and Zechariah as their prophetic mission. So they help bring encouragement to the project. The new temple's completed in 516, and then that's 70 years after the destruction of Solomon's temple. So there's this idea of 70 and 70 again. So in Ezra, the book of Ezra, which is 458, he returns to Jerusalem, followed by Nehemiah, and they help encourage the people to rebuild Jerusalem's wall. So that if you read those books, there's kind of this uh, exciting story where the neighbors are like trying to stop them, and they're about to invade, so they have to build this wall quickly to, in order to defend themselves. And so they build it in a miraculous, like, I don't remember, it was like 40 or 60 days or something. Do you remember? No, I don't. I just remember, like, reading stories and some archaeologists and just kind of being impressed with all the construction. Just the whole construction involving Israel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in, in... in general, there's just something amazing about that, you know. It I feel like it's kind of there is some kind of um, mystery, you know, in the construction back on time because even this the building of the 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 pyramids, you know, and all these things. But yeah, I'm just going somewhere else. But yeah. no, it's fine. Um, so basically, kind of just to sum it up. Uh, the Israelites get to this place, the temple's rebuilt, Jerusalem has its walls again, it's inhabited, and it's kind of like the start over, right? The promises came true that God's people, the remnant that remained, would get to return home. But there seems to be, there's a story about the temple when they're dedicating it back to the Lord, and it says the older generation weeps while the younger generation celebrates, because the older generation remembered the glory of the old temple, but the new generation uh, doesn't know it right and so it leaves you kind of with this melancholy feel of like okay yeah things have happened but like it, it seems like a very diminished glory of what was really meant to be right and even in the sense of like Galilee where Jesus would have grown up um, becomes so in the book of the Bible and maybe we'll talk about this more in the next episode the Samaritans. So Jesus, a lot of times you'll read in the New Testament, the Samaritans yeah, and the Jews. I really Jews, wanted to touch you on that, touch a bit on that. Yeah, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. Well, why did they hate the Samaritans? Well, during this exile period, what the Babylonians did is they planted people from other nations into kind of Israel and Judea in that area, mainly in Israel where Galilee is located. And those people intermarried with anyone that remained. So they almost, it, it's going to sound awful when I say this, but in the Jewish eyes, they were like half-breeds, right? People who worshipped Yahweh but had intermixed and intermarried with all these other peoples. So they viewed them as impure or defiled in what God had asked them to do, right? And the sad thing about that is, I think that's one of the one of the problem about the, this big conflict is, this, this Samaritan, they were just like, well, you guys were not here, you know. We were just here, left in this place. The temple got destroyed. And because it's not just the marriage, I think. Also just the, 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 the idolatry and mm. everything that Samaria ended up doing. Because the temple was destroyed. Everything was destroyed. So they had no one, you know, to kind of just 
hold them accountable and just bring them back to God, you know. And then you have these people coming back. Say, this is home. We are, we are the pure ones. You guys who have been here sitting all this time, living in this land all this time. We, we don't call you. We are, you guys are not part of us because you are all these half breeds and you have all these guys and everything. And I feel like that's when all this conflict starts, you know. And sometimes just like, ah, it's... It's hard to read this story, you know, and just kind of not understand, not want, at least today, not wanting to stay on Samaria's side because, mm. you know, they kind of were just left then and these people came back. Yeah. And that part of it, I, too, I think, too, is some of the people that opposed the temple would have been the the ancestors of the Samaritans mm-hmm. in Jesus's day. So there's just a whole lot of conflict yes. of really... You know, not racial in the way that we'd see it because the world wasn't divided into quote-unquote races in that way. But there is a people group conflict between these two because because of this distinctness that the Jews feel about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I think that distinctness, that purifying, that we can't go back to the way we were because look at the results, right? Um really develops from exile. The The whole reason why there's strict adherence to Torah in Jesus's day is because they recognized when they weren't strict on it, look what the, the devastating results were. Mm-hmm. And I think to summarize this kind of whole prophets and exile, that's the thing. Many of these prophets were not recognized, were not honored, were not valued in their own day. It was only after seeing their words come true that these prophetic books really became a key source of hope and reminder of what can happen if we're not faithful to Yahweh. But during their time, really their obedience to Yahweh um, resulted in not a lot of fruit that they saw, right? But they, they became the key cornerstones for what we would receive in the New Testament. Have you heard about the Hassins? Hassin, yes. Yeah, so there's one, this one big, I was just reading and just very interesting thing because they excavated and these really kind of their temple and everything, you know, and in their temple, they were just kind of uh, showing where was what and everything. So the, this temple where they were, it was kind of in the middle of these hills and everything. But because their sins, they were trying to keep all the all the, how can I say, the rules in the sense of the purification and everything and all these things, they had to excavate a stream, you know, make like a stream that could go all the way and cross those mountains, all the way to the river and bring the pure water to come. So this place where after someone's, so we have the toilet, after someone's goes to the toilet and then it would jump into the pool where the, 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 the pure water is coming and then he would get himself purified and then would go or walk out and then do his things. And then uh, they was just saying like probably, and they were these extreme living people, you know, because it was yeah. like, we are, we, we're not going to mix up with everybody else. We're just going to be these special people. And they were saying some of people, some, 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 some theologians, they believe that that's where John, uh, John the Baptist come from, mm. you know, and because they would do the extreme thing in John the Baptist. Yeah. The Baptist. So we'll talk about the Essenes in the next one as well. Oh, really? Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't think. Yep. Awesome. So I think we've kind of hammered this one out, and hopefully that gives you guys, the listener, a better idea as you read these books, how you can maybe build a framework around 
like why they're super important to the New Testament narrative and how they speak to the climate of their day, right? To call uh, Judah and Israel back to Yahweh and the devastating results of not following him, of not um, being a part of this project that God was wanting to bring forward. But all right, guys, that's all we have for today, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, I really like this, this one. Yeah, it was a goodie. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is just a brief reminder that if you've had a question come up from this discussion or you just have a question in general that you want to ask us on the podcast, uh, now is the time to do it. We want to make sure that we get these questions in for the end of the season Q&R. Uh, and we cannot wait to hear your guys' questions, to read them, and to be able to respond. But we can't do that unless you send them to us. So make sure if you're a part of Kingdom Movement already, you can personally message us your question. Or you can send them via our Instagram. And we will make sure to read those. And hopefully we will answer your question on the season finale question and answer, uh, question and response episode. All right. Thanks, guys.